Welcome to After Credits here on the Intercut Podcast channel, where we review a new movie, including anything that comes after the credits. I am your co-host, Zachary Shevich, and joining me, he am become death, destroyer of worlds. Yes. It's Arturo Zurita. You know, I always wanted to know where that line came from, and now I know. How that pew pewed into his life, and it was it was Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer created that line. He, he wrote it himself. Yeah, that's how it was. And that's exactly how it mystery solved. Uh, Christopher Nolan's latest is a three-hour look at the life and legacy of American theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, centered around his time as the director of the Manhattan Project, which developed the atomic bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August 1945. The film is a richly detailed propulsive and sobering journey through Oppenheimer's life with a star-studded cast as well as vivid, engrossing visuals courtesy of cinema photographer Hoyt Van Hoytema. One of the best in the game? Is he Is he your top dog right now, Arturo? Oh, right now he's top five and he's top three. <laughs> For sure. Top three and he isn't number three? He ain't number three. <laughs> Arturo, were you captivated by Oppenheimer or was there a failure to launch? Nah, I was all in. Now, I will say, it, it does feel like a trailer that is pitched to be very explosive and high mm -hmm. energy. And like you're going to be seeing trial and error of bombs going off left and right. It's not. And I think for the people who may have thought that that's what it was, you know, you haven't bought your tickets yet because they're sold out until August. Do know that it is a three-hour, very introspective thought on the title character Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. It is not so much about, you know, the war happening over in Japan or the attacks happening here. Like, it, it is about the creation and the turmoil that comes with a creative, a scientist who ends up forming one of the biggest and deadliest weapons in the After Effects. It, it, it is a chain reaction movie. Mm -hmm. That is very dialogue heavy. And if you know that, mm, there's a lot to, to go into. Absolutely, yeah. This is a movie featuring a lot of men in rooms talking at one another. I think there are uh, comparisons to be made there between this movie and like what we expect from a Sarah Aaron Sorkin movie, although I find this one to be like a lot less sanctimonious and a little bit less speechy. But Nolan... As much credit as he gets for being a visual stylist and making these very like epic blockbuster films, I think sometimes his ability to write really clever rat-a-tat dialogue is really underrated. And I think uh, this is just an excellent, excellent script. It's uh, it is you know not necessarily what we always consider to be the kind of like IMAX cinema. Uh, but I but think it does also, cool? it also uses those elements really, really intriguingly. Yeah. And, and I think the experience is enhanced by that, particularly because like one of the things that great filmmakers know how to do is go from quiet to loud, use, use all the elements and then take them away in a way that you feel the absence of them as well. And, you know, I think a lot of this movie is built around this idea that you're going to get this gigantic moment and even mm -hmm. in the climax of that that particular sequence one of the things that's so great about how Nolan approaches it is when he takes away sound and things like that and he yeah. kind of lets you just experience it and I don't know I think this is a really incredibly made film a really uh gripping and uh 
densely layered and thought-provoking movie. Uh, there's a lot I really liked about it. Art, you dropped a whole video over on Let Me Explain about all the different ways that you can see Oppenheimer on the big screen between film and digital, IMAX and Dolby. How did you see it? What did you think? And do you stick by your recommendations in the LME? That cam quality footage that drops is great. <laughs> it is shot at 143. I uh, I got to see it uh, on 70 millimeter in our first watch, which is it was a decent watch. You know, I had mentioned in the video that one of the big things between digital and film that just a lot of people don't understand is that you really do need that team effort when you're dealing with a film projector. You're not just pressing play. You mm -hmm. need somebody to be taking care of that film. They put it together. So if they're eating Butterfingers right before, you know, they had some Whoppers, it's going to get all over the film, and that's not a good thing. If they're not taking care of it up in the booth, if they're not watching over it, a lot of issues. I was a little worried for you because I heard the first showing of Lincoln... Uh, at the Lincoln, Lincoln, Center, Lincoln, Square? Right? Lincoln Square? Yeah, Lincoln Center. Lincoln yeah. Square. They can even let them know that they swapped it out for the digital? Oh, that's I, bogus. Yeah, that's pretty bogus. That's that's, that's pretty at bogus. least better than the places that didn't have a digital. Yeah. And See, they just I knew were sent home. <laughs> True. Like there's definitely been some real like cataclysmic screenings of this film in 70 millimeter IMAX. And before we started streaming, you and I were talking about how there are only 30 of these cinemas in the world. And that world. And that even that there's so few that not all of them are like perfectly functioning. It speaks to just how like precious that can be as like an ability to screen this movie, even if it is the way that Nolan intended. And I'm really glad I got the chance to experience it. I know I got the the film version because there was like a scratch on uh, the reel for part of it and then it swapped reels and the scratch was gone so like right? that's but that's part of the experience too in like seeing a movie during its process it's tangible. And that, yeah yeah you get that more tactile feel in it and you know I saw it myself uh, first in Dolby uh, where nice. I was you know 10 minutes into maybe 5 minutes into the movie maybe 5 seconds into the movie my, my seat was shaking like it was in 40X and I oh. knew I was going to be in for a good time I really I really enjoyed my my Dolby atmosphere experience of it uh, and I really enjoyed the 70 millimeter IMAX as well you know it's just it, it, particularly in Lincoln Center which is the biggest screen uh, in America like it's it's just uh, pretty epic to see these visuals so gigantic even if it is just like Killian Murphy's face in a conference room uh, mm -hmm. but like it, it there's something to that gigantic uh, projection that it's almost like the way that people talk about how you put your phone away. Like it's, it's beyond that. You're like, your eyelids are peeled open watching this wash over you. Um, that said, like, I know some people were complaining about the 70 millimeter IMAX aspect ratio shifts because there are moments where it's shifting back from full screen to uh, letterbox to full screen again. And, you know, you don't get that in the Dolby Atmos. I also really appreciated just like how much more intense the sound was in my Dolby screening, you know. Considering how hard it is to get into some of these 70 millimeter IMAX screenings, if you're not getting like a great seat for it, if all that's left is the front row, probably no better off just going for a Dolby or something like that. Yeah, there was that funny video of the person who was sitting like way so close in the front. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's why I had broken down. I was like, there are different ways to watch the movie, but it's like, what's the best way for you? Uh, if there's an IMAX screening, but it doesn't have recliners, it's a three-hour movie. Some of y'all are going to need those recliners. Um, I, I think the one thing with uh, the Lincoln Square one, and I'll even say with uh, – I went to Indianapolis 
great projection. Shout out to uh, Wayne. He did a fantastic job. Yeah, the Indiana um, State Museum, was oh, it? Shout out to them. Yeah, they did a fan. A lot of people have said that they've been, you know, in the Midwest area going to that one after our recommendation. So I, I really hope that they continue uh, projecting it really well. Yeah. But the, uh, the idea of where you're going to watch the movie is really dependent on really how you want to view it. I know it's the way Nolan intended, but you know, a lot of directors also intend their movies to be good (laughs) and it's not necessarily going to always be the case. So it's whatever you have in front of you, especially with when it's only 30 in the world, 13 in North America, I believe. Mm -hmm. So you're you're very limited. Um, You and I crossed state lines to see it in 70 millimeter IMAX. You went a little further than I did. I went a little further, just a little bit. But we're also a bit crazy. I want to go to Georgia. I don't know if you've heard Georgia, but I think Georgia has that theater that finally Mm. beat out Lincoln. It's supposed to be even taller. So because this is IMAX and it goes Mm -hmm. even higher than that, I think they broke seven stories because our Navy Pier was only five stories. Uh, And the tallest one that I've been to was kind of pushing six. What you were describing about the aspect ratio changing, I know is not going to be for everybody. But the main reason that we'll get into is is for two reasons here. I think that the story about perspective that shifts from color mm-hmm. to, to black and white also has moments that are accentuated, uh, accentuated depending on when it goes tall. And I think that is worth it. It's almost like you're, you're giving somebody a stout and they've never mm-hmm. had it before. And they're like, eh, it seems fine. And it goes, ah, in 10 years, I wish, I wish you had the opportunity to have a 70 millimeter experience once you really notice what you're looking at. Absolutely. Because I think there's a lot more in there. But for anyone who got their IMAX destroyed, I know what happened. Tom Cruise was in there. <laughs> messing it up because he's really upset. Mission possible, absolutely. Oh, hey, but you have another week. I heard they extended it. So one more week yeah. of IMAX for the and, Oppenheimer. And uh, I believe IMAX also announced that they will be doing more screenings of Oppenheimer and IMAX uh, throughout the late summer into the fall as there is availability. That's so, raw. Uh, and Dune got extended, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited of, for that. A lot of good IMAX experiences in our future. Uh, so, yeah, I've gotten to see it twice, but I'm already excited to see it again because I thought that this was a pretty brilliant film from Christopher Nolan. I think that uh, the way that the film is able to balance all this rich detail, you know, I, I actually mentioned bef- uh, in our intercuts before that I have been working my way through. I, I Listen to American Prometheus, the biography that this is based on. I mean, it is incredible, just is a richly dense text that gives you a picture of the person. It's so far and beyond like what I was expecting, because obviously, like if you're not like a student of history, you, you know, like. Oppenheimer was part of this project that created the the atomic bomb, but like you don't know all of the political influences in his life and his his life's journey and his travelings and all the people that he uh, came across. And this movie is somehow able to capture so much of that. Like there's like a buffet, right? Yeah, like there's this detail in the book where he gets upset with one of his classmates, so he decides to uh, take an apple and poison it with cyanide. And like, there's no way they're gonna put this in the movie. And they put it in the fucking movie. Like they, he he is able to work through so much history and put in so many characters who become kind of like instantly identifiable. So many different perspectives are represented and, and voiced in this film. I found all of that to be just really, really incredible uh, as a as a document uh, of this progression. And mm-hmm. you know. Nolan is not a filmmaker who really works that much in subtlety and obviously the political message in this film like it's made text it's not just subtext but I think that 
he's able to to balance the perspective in a way that feels like it's voicing different sides of the argument and still kind of giving you like a firmly resolved, clear-headed point of view in terms of looking back at this history and how how we should feel about it, how we should reckon with it, and how we maybe don't reckon with it in the way that is depicted in this film. Okay. I can see. I see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, were you as gripped by by it, or were there maybe sections that uh, worked better for you, or that it slowed down in? I, I think as a moviegoer, you're looking forward to that bomb scene, right? And the first act of it moves mm-hmm. so fast. Like you were mentioning, the cyanide bit. If you know anything about the book, I, I know that the movie's missing a lot, yeah. but like he's got to be huge commended for, for how jam-packed he was able to put things in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I feel like in that first act, you don't get more than a minute and a half in a room before you're on to the next one yeah. or onto the next talk or onto like you're moving at such a br- uh, break, break fast, break neck, break fast, whatever the phrase is. Break neck, break neck, break neck <laughs> it, pace. It, it, it's really quick and yeah. he covers a lot. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, I know a story about him learning an entire language yeah. in a matter of like weeks, if not like a month or two. And they find a way to put that into the movie. And the mm-hmm. way that it's just so, so quick at the beginning, I think keeps you uh, invested. Then you get the bomb sequence. And then after that, I'm not going to lie. I don't think it's that it loses your interest as much as it's two hours and 10 minutes that you're in the theater already. Right. If you didn't even have trailers in the 70 millimeter cut, that it kind of just wears you down at that point. But that last act, if you can watch it fresh, you know, once they do that Netflix model where people watch it in the three parts, you need to go into that like just refreshed so you can Mm -hmm. really break it down because a lot of movies lose gas by the end of it. And this one doesn't. It's no, you as the viewer who are three hours in, but it's still going heavy there. You know, yeah. there's this, a, a lot of visual motifs you had mentioned when you see the bomb. It sets you up with that idea of like you see it before you hear it. Mm-hmm. And the beginning of the movie is the ending of the movie. That sequence with Einstein where his hat flies away, but you don't realize that you're seeing it before you hear it. Mm-hmm. And the man just the man was cooking. Yeah, I mean, just all the way that the all the ways that the film feels like it comes full circle, how uh, ideas are put out there and then answered or or just called back to later in the film is really like expert level stuff. And I I'll agree with you that in my first watch of the movie, like I felt maybe a little more restless in that third hour of it. Uh, but I think part of that, as you mentioned, is like the one thing that we all know we're going to get from this movie is the bomb sequence. Like we are building to that moment when uh, we have the test, when the bomb is made, when when uh, everybody cheers because it's a clear victory and, and there's no moral ambiguity to it whatsoever. Uh, but But because we know that part of the story, when the story then continues for another almost hour... I think we are less sure of where the resolution is going to be and our, our bladders are starting to work on us and stuff like that. And when I sat down with it for a second time, I just thought the whole thing moved. The whole uh, film just has this relentless so pace connects, to yeah. it where where it is nonstop, but it is also very clear in its messaging. Like, I, the purpose of each scene is additive and it, and it builds to it really different is. moments. Uh, you know, there's... L- there's that one major climax with the bomb, but there's also mini climaxes throughout. And I, I don't know. I think it's a really <laughs> climaxes throughout. <laughs> <laughs> pretty yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I really appreciate just the 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 pace of it and the you know Nolan has 
obviously become kind of the god of cross cutting, and people make fun of his obsession with time Shout and layered yes. different timelines. Jennifer Lame, I think, is the the editor on Shout this one, and out, she bro. is incredible. I think. Uh, this is her second collaboration with Nolan after Tenet. And if you look Ooh. at these two films together, like I think they've been able to bring Nolan's ideas of scenes that respond to each other and how one moment in one timeline impacts another moment in another timeline and really make that feel fully realized in a way that isn't so labored or, or call doesn't need to call it as much attention to itself. It, it just like feels natural you know you uh, are journeying through Oppenheimer's life and then you flash forward to these moments either in his security clearance hearing or in mm -hmm. the Strauss Senate confirmation hearing that are directly of impact or, or directly uh, responding to the events we've just seen or are about to see. Like it all has this call and response nature to it that makes it flow so remarkably. You know, uh, Nolan is this filmmaker who I think there are a lot of very identifiable traits to his films that you can identify in this movie too. Uh, but for to me, like this is the things that Nolan does best all working perfectly. Like he, he has really conquered that ability to uh, move through different times and different uh, eras and, and bring it all together with a, uh, a pace that is, you know, ex exhilarating, even if the subject is, you know, devastating in its way too. Like the other th reaction I had to this movie is, is this the, most financially successful movie ever that is like a gigantic bummer. It, it is, it is a down, uh, a downtrodden movie. It is, it's not a movie that you leave the theater feeling like great and hopeful about life. Yeah. I, I know a lot of people comparing it to a bunch of different movies. Uh, to me, this is his, there will be blood. Yeah. The way that he's able to dissect this man's life and to see that he got a lot of team members, especially art department from there. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the editing right now. Yeah, please. Um, bro, this woman did Tenet, Marriage Story, Hereditary. We're going to skip Tyrell. Manchester <laughs> by the Sea, Meriwood Stories. Ironic, look, Mistress America while we're young. Like, she and worked Francis with the Barbie I, yeah. crew. It's Barbenheimer all over again. Uh, and, like, you were saying, the way that it's building up into these different things when you see one image and it leads to another, just like the story, it's a chain reaction. Mm -hmm. He's He's just, he's firing on a lot of cylinders here. There is a moment early on, because we have to shout out if we're, we're sticking with the uh, the technical team in terms of editing. In terms of music, Ludwig did his mm. thing. There is a moment early on in the movie where Oppenheimer is told that he needs to listen to the music. When he's trying to figure something out, yes, he's like, you've got to yes. go through the beats in between. And the next thing that plays is like the biggest song out of the soundtrack. And mm -hmm. it's like this man is breaking the fourth wall and letting you know as the audience, sit back. You listen to the music, too. There's Absolutely. a lot of this meta-ness in there. Um, I, I haven't been able to see him, but uh, I don't know how much of outside of American Prometheus you've seen. But um, David, uh, from from the movie we saw at Sundance, where he was a father who felt like his son cheated because of him. David. Oh, uh, Strathairn. Strathairn. Yes, yeah. I believe he makes a little cameo in one of the scenes towards the end. Yes. He played Oppenheimer. Oh, did he really? one of the PBS reenactments. He did That's the funny. entire court scene. 
then he's in the court scene, or it's not court, but you know, yeah. the interrogation. I'm assuming scene. he he must have had just like lines that were cut because he's such a like known so, actor. Exactly. That's why we recognize him immediately. Yeah. He wasn't in the other scenes. You got Matt Damon saying wicked up on the big screen. <laughs> then Casey Affleck appears, being narrated by Matt Damon. There are a bunch of other sequences that are early on where I'm like, he's just having fun with this movie. Like you were mentioning that this is a man who mastered it in Memento, mm-hmm. Inception, Interstellar. Mm-hmm. Hell, he even did it in Dunkirk with the way he was playing in time depending on what person was where, sea, land, or sky. This is easy for him, bro. <laughs> yeah. Like There are a lot of people coming out of this movie calling it boring and understanding something else. They expected explosions. They thought IMAX meant that the camera was going to be super far away. Mm-hmm. And he had the audacity to take that and do a close-up in IMAX. And I think it adds a lot to it. Absolutely. I, you know, it. it's also that, like, ability to go from those small moments to those moments with the bomb. And, and uh, you, that intercutting uh, between aspect ratios that I was talking about earlier, you know, you get, like, a dialogue and then you get the, the sounds of an explosion uh you know, perforating it. And it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, there, there's something really electric to it. Uh, particularly, you mentioned Ludwig's score. Uh, we'd be we'd be remiss to give all the credit for the pacing to the editing because it's that score, too, that really carries you through scenes and that tempo. connects different Ooh. scenes together. It, it's really, really incredible stuff. Yeah. Uh, I like how he almost has the rhythm of the um, the, the train. When you're seeing him in those yes. moments as they're going back and forth because they break down early on that in order to work on this Manhattan Project, they need to be like in the center fuge of all of these big cities in order to get what they need mm-hmm. to Los Alamos. And uh, you'll have them in the score incorporate what feels like, you know, a train speeding up on its tracks. The fusion or fission that they were talking about in terms of these atoms coming together and now it builds up speed. He just knocked it out of the park. I was listening to the score on my way back uh, on a flight. Mm-hmm. We hit turbulence, Zach. <laughs> it was visceral, I will say that. Yeah, yeah. It is I a mean, great it, score. He obviously had a great collaboration going with Hans Zimmer, but he's somehow found like a, a guy Good on him. is really, really like at the peak of his game in Ludwig right now. Like, I, 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 I love the meme from Amadeus going around that it was like Hans Zimmer looking like Salieri at Mozart. Um, it, Interesting <laughs> you say that. We're going to bring back Amadeus in a little bit when we get into the characters, but yes, yeah, I agree. It's also cool because now we got Hans over on Dune, and I wouldn't want to Killing it. Killing it, yeah. So fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's been really awesome to see the work. Uh, you mentioned a couple performances just a moment ago, and Matt Damon, and uh, Casey Affleck. So much, were, there, yeah. were there any performances in particular that stood out to you? Should we start with Killian Murphy? Because he <laughs> is like really, really incredible in this kind of enigmatic role at the center. The, the, just the way that he, the tone of his voice is so particular and so mysterious, but like inflected interestingly. I just, I couldn't look away from him when he was on screen. I heard he also had like a diet of a thousand calories. Like he was I just mean, not eating, he was not yeah. consuming because he he's knew gaunt. He, the IMAX landscapes were going to be his face. It was <laughs> mm-hmm. going to be his cheekbones. It was going to be all the blotches. I was hearing some of the the, the makeup artists talk about because they drank so much alcohol, there was blotches. Mm-hmm. On his skin because of how much they were consuming, Ugh. you know, his outfit and the details in it, all of it is on full display. I have to give a shout out to uh, Ruth Young, who um, she worked on There Will Be Blood. This is a production designer. Mm. Hoyta 
worked with her on a little movie called Nope, where she absolutely crushed it. And now she's working with Christopher Nolan here where they built the town from scratch. Zach, this is a COVID movie. <laughs> we spent so many years talking about these films that were, were, were uh, done on lockdown and how you could, oh, you can kind of feel it. It's kind of, you know, tiny crowd, whatever else. This is a COVID movie. Mm-hmm. Mission Impossible was a COVID movie. None of us realized, like, wow, they weren't limited at all. Mm-hmm. Here they were able to do the uh, Asteroid City effect where they all lived in Los Alamos and were able to film. They were just waking yeah. up. They were doing everything that they needed to because uh, the production designer built it from the ground up. And I think having Killian live in that world, I, I think he did his thing and he realized uh, uh, how to take that to the next level. And I, I think it's one of the best performances of the year. Yeah, I feel like it's, a for me, going to be a lock in terms of uh, the best actor performances. I would not be surprised at all to see him in the Oscars race at all. I also Easily. wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Robert Downey Jr., who well, returns yes, in some ways to acting in acting. this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, you had mentioned Amadeus. They said that that was one of the big inspirations was mm-hmm, this idea of him being Salieri, uh, that from his perspective, it isn't about the government. It isn't about the world. About a guy who got disrespected. It's some good fellas type of like just this that he felt. And I think if you look at it from his point of view, you really do have like a Martin Scorsese flick. Someone mm-hmm. who's up in, in the government, who's about to be honestly made a Don, right? And then gets slighted because of a a a, a a sequence in where he was disrespected in front of all of his peers. And you see that perspective from different angles. Mm-hmm. And from his point of view, all of this bomb, that was just the extra stuff that happened. He was just really mad at this dude. And I, I find that so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we should declare this is like going to be our spoiler section since we want to maybe get into some specifics around this. Because the Strauss element of this whole film is so interesting. Um, in that, like, it, I feel like the echoes uh, that we were talking about earlier are really felt uh, with Strauss. You know, they the, way, the ways in which... Uh, Oppenheimer uh, becomes kind of like a voice, like a, a representational figure for a lot of political animosities uh, that comes back to bite Strauss in the end in his hearing, mm-hmm. and it's just a, you know really intelligently structured from Nolan. So smart. Um, the the whole color footage versus black and white footage. Uh, did Talk you know it. going into the movie uh, yeah. that that's what? No, yeah. So I read that as well. I still feel like I would have figured that out just by watching the film because it's so clearly like For sure. you never really leave Oppenheimer when we're in color footage. And it's all kind of f- from Strauss's perspective, even when we see other stuff in the black and white. So it, I don't know. I think it works really well. And it also ends up um, being this like it, it ends up allowing the film to have this kind of foil in the end um, that makes it feel a little more like the full journey. I would also say that it's a fantastic way to look back on history, right? Yeah. You have that sequence with Einstein and his perspective is, oh, he said something to Einstein to piss him off against me. And then from his, the objective perspective is like something happened there that would lead to the fallout. And then from Oppenheimer's perspective, you know, it's something different. You have the, that moment when they're sitting down at the dinner table. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I always refer to that scene. That's where, um, um, from Chronicle, what's his name? What a Dane slimy Dahan. role. He, Dane DeHaan. We'll, we'll get to yeah. all the actors. But when he like moves it and you're seeing that same talk with all of these big figures from different perspectives, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, uh, like you said, black and white, 
in color when it goes full frame to 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 punctuate on something nah dude like it works so well and i think that that's a great way to look at history because you're seeing the same thing and how three different people perceived it and it mm-hmm. allows you to get the whole story it is such a smart technique dude it's exactly. so smart and it also allows you to sort of forgive places in where it might not be exactly as it happened in history because it's from a person's perspective right like yes. it's yeah, it's inflected by the way they viewed the situation. So, you know, we're always getting things interpolated through us in, in cinema. So it, I, to bake that into the telling of the story, I think, is really interesting here as well. You also have the uh, interrogation scene, which would have been all recorded. Like I said, uh, David uh, Strathairn, when he did his PBS one, he is only reenacting that. Mm. And because of that, you also have that through line within the movie where you have the subjective and objective stuff going on but you also do have like what is literally just a stage play and i think for a lot of people they don't know how to watch a movie that it doesn't go boom 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 every 30 (laughs) minutes because this does and it's not a bad thing it's an imax movie that feels like it could be up on stage like you can do a lot of these performances for real like Mm -hmm. it it is a, a, a fantastic ensemble and i think just having the balls to shoot that and have people travel to see people talking in a room yeah. is such a Nolan thing to do. It's great. You, how do you say his last name? Louis? Uh, which one? Louis Strauss? Oh, Strauss. Yeah, I think not he kind of pronounced it more like straws. Not straws, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I it's, it's... freaking love that writing, dude. And when, yeah. then Oppenheimer goes, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, they're going to know I'm Jewish either way. Yeah, I mean, that's another interesting aspect of the movie, I feel like, is Oppenheimer's Judaism that people have, I think, been overlooking in different respects. Yes, they uh, are. It's a huge yeah, part yeah, of the movie. It's a huge part of the movie, and, and people people are just sort of, I don't know, I think leaving it out in their assessments of the film. Could it uh, be? We love Killian, but could it be because they think he's still Irish? Like, they're still seeing the guy from maybe, Mickey Blinders? Maybe, you know? but it, to me, it feels like you're not watching the movie because he states For it sure. explicitly. Oh, he states it explicitly with lines like, I don't know if we should have it, but I def- the bomb. But I yeah. definitely know that the Germans shouldn't. Right. There's a, a, a part with him and, uh, I don't know if you know right off the bat, the buddy who's always feeding him. Who's always giving him something to eat? Uh, David Crumholtz, who, by the way, gave one of my favorite performances in this movie. Fantastic! I, I saw That's somebody on right Twitter, there. and I forget who it was, that said um, David Crumholtz turned into Alfred Molina, and nobody noticed. Yes, but, like, he it's, did. Whoa! <laughs> yes, it's, it's what a great, That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, him, obviously, he brings a lot of that. There's a whole sequence that they have in the train when he's like talking to him, and he's like, you know, you your Yiddish isn't that great, you mm-hmm. know, that we have to look out for each other, and you know, what that, part of the pond you live in. That's another really uh, great little bit detail that they have in there. That uh, Oppenheimer says they don't really speak Yiddish on my side of the park, and I think he, I think he's referring to like the more like wealthy Jews who've become Americanized versus the poorer Jews who are still like holding on to their immigrant traditions. Exactly. Yeah. And that's why I thought immediately when you're introduced to these two men, Lewis going, nah, it's straws. It's <laughs> already telling you that he is the sellout. He is yeah. the one who's willing to hide his, his Jewishness to be able to go up the ranks. And I'm like, there is so much depth to this movie. And people mm-hmm. are like, oh, they're just talking. I'm like, yeah, but y'all ain't listening. It is a great script from him. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's still like, you know, even though 
um, his motivations are rooted in uh, his Jew- his Jewishness that he wants to use, help develop this bomb to combat the Nazis. I think it still makes the point that ultimately uh, he get he and all the people who are part of its creation get sucked into the spheres of like power and of of whiteness if that's what you, how you want to put it and of uh, black uh, and white. imperialism yeah exactly uh. right like they um so you know and i don't know i think i found the movie to be pretty clear-eyed morally and that the you know there is this weird criticism of the movie that like they some people wanted to see hiroshima getting bombed and i think that's I, i've heard it from smart people which really concerns me right like in in one aspect it's like, I don't know why you want to engage in, like, the historical version of torture porn, but in the other aspect of it, it feels far more in line with what this movie's trying to do in that, you know, these are people who were largely unfamiliar with the enemies that they were bombing or they were, a, you know, a world away, and it's not like they all had cell phones like we do. It, they yeah. were they were working to fight an enemy that they never looked in the eye, and, and that's so... Uh, integral to how Oppenheimer reacts in the latter half of this film. You know, there's that really incredible scene where he is being shown slideshow footage or slideshow pictures, I guess, of the damage that the atomic bombs have done in Japan. And he can't even look look at the screen because he's so overwhelmed with you know the the realities of the situation you know if, yeah. if you think this is a film that's just glorifying these people for having worked on this thing that a lot of people remember as a part of history i think you're like ignoring that whole latter half of the movie yeah i had heard people like want to see it as if like they they know what it is but i guess you know again people wanted to see all the yeah. bombs going off every 30 minutes and they also kind of wanted to see that torture part of it like like, they can't fill in the blanks themselves, but I I think he does do it because you don't need to see the slideshow. Mm-hmm. You see it in his mind when that incredible sequence of him giving the speech cuts in and out of audio and, and the lightness. And then there's that moment where you see the girl's face mm. just ripping Flora off. Laura Nolan's face. Exactly. Which we'll get into more about, like, yeah. just how Nolan puts himself in there with it pl- uh, being played by his daughter. But you did see it. You got to see what the effect would be on the flesh, but not from the outside forces, from the whole point of the movie, which is you created this bomb, yeah, it'll attack them, but how much longer before it's being used on us? Mm-hmm. I, like, it's, it's, I don't know, the movie's answering a lot of questions that people keep throwing at it, and I think it handles them yeah. very well. Not only that scene, but I think the scene in which the generals and people in charge of the atomic bomb are all sitting around deciding where to bomb. Like, there's few things that are more devastating than that moment when, I want to say it's Tony Goldwyn's character, I could be wrong. I believe uh, so decides to cross off Kyoto because he and his wife honeymooned there and he thinks it's a lovely city. Just like the the casualness with which they they yeah. spare that that city because they have some connection to it, I think is a far more damning portrait of what this time was like, what these people were like who made this decision than simply showing like what would likely be a heavily CGI'd version of, of the bombings. And at least to me, that seems like the, the uh, more reasonable solution. I, I also really responded to uh, this one tweet from the uh, at queer socialism account that thinking that uh, the, the, the reason that a lot of people are also like hope it, have this desire to see um, the actual bombing is that there's this 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 like 
motivation to bear witness to atrocities in order to feel like you are aware of them or care about them. And I just find that to be like exploitative in its own way. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Oppenheimer looks at the camera and says, come and see. (laughs) Yeah. No, rewatch it, bro. That man straight up like goes, you want to come and see? That's the (laughs) movie that some people wanted. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was making here. And yeah, people were not getting it there. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who it was. Uh, uh, Tony is the guy in the back of the interrogation scene. The one who says that Kyoto is uh, another actor, which I'm trying to pull up. But yeah. uh, if we continue going down the list. <laughs> There's actors, a, cause, a lot of uh, recognizable an, yeah, white male character actors we, in this. We can go through all of this. Every, the movie had me doing the DiCaprio <sighs> meme, dude. It was fantastic. Yeah. And people who I did not expect. If I could throw one out. Yes, please. Josh Hartnett, welcome back, boy. Okay, so here's, he's maybe the best example of like what I love about the way this film is cast and also Nolan's ability to use actors because like this is a movie that is top lined by the biggest stars in Hollywood. You know, you get Florence Pugh, you get Matt Damon, you get Robert Downey Jr. He lets Josh Hartnett cook because Josh Hartnett is perfect for that role of Lawrence and it doesn't matter if he's not necessarily the most star, the person with the highest IMDb star rating in this movie. He is so well suited for this part. And and he's so good. I was so happy to see him in it. On top of that, you know, my man fought in Pearl Harbor, so they had had to bring him back for this one. (laughs) Oh, man. No, it was really good to see him. Uh, On top of that, you had like a bunch of other little tiny performances. Alex Mm -hmm. Wolf as like the student, who I just really want to add that uh, when you have a sequence of everyone around or sequences of everyone around Oppenheimer figuring things out, and he doesn't, I think it tells you a lot about the inner workings of being a director just in general for a lot of things because Mm -hmm. you see him more delegating in this movie than he even creates. Oh, that's something that really stuck with me the second time around. I noticed how purposefully everybody is creating things around him Uh, because he tries to solve something on the board. He goes, it's not possible. Then Alex Wolf comes out and he goes, no, (laughs) it is. Yep, yep. Uh, Keeping it going. Uh, A really big one that I would say is the Battle of the Accents. There was uh, a very surprising (laughs) role. Our boy Benny? By a director who is no longer a director? Why? Uh, I don't, uh, I'm trying to find Benny over here. Here we go. Benny. Playing Edward Teller, the who would have been the father. He is, but the father of yeah. the hydrogen bomb. Um, obviously, he's there and he's helping out and he kind of pitches this idea of like, this is what we need to do. A bigger bomb. Yeah. But in order to create that bigger bomb, you kind of need what they were working on first. Kind of and I have to do it bit. in a thick Hungarian accent. Something. You know what's funny it- about accents? <laughs> is that everyone had a problem with his. Not realizing... That the main actors are also doing an accent. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, It's not necessarily like the most authentic Eastern European accent, but I had no problem with it. I thought it was fun. Thank you. It's a little I think goofy, it's because they but... know who he is. Yeah. Do you know who doesn't have a problem with it? People who don't know who this man is. Yeah. Exactly. That, I'll just leave that People there. are like, Betty Safty, you don't see, speak like that. Come, come on now. Yeah, not yeah. just Killian Murphy. He's Irish. <laughs> but I like his character because um, Me too. in that form of disrespect that, that uh, Strauss felt, he felt the same way because he's like, I helped you create yours. You're on Time Magazine. You are doing your exact same thing. But when I needed your cosign, you didn't give it to me. All of a sudden you have these morals, but you didn't have those morals when we created the first bomb. Right. Ah, I found that fascinating. Again, another viewpoint that you can come into the movie and just follow it from his perspective. How slighting him early on 
is what gets his credentials to be taken away because it's his final bit um, where he even shakes his hand. I love that bit. Uh, we'll get to Emily Blunt's character next. Oh, well, let's talk about her, bro. She did an incredible <laughs> job. Yeah, I mean, you know, she is on the sidelines for a lot of this movie, but I thought she's pretty remarkable. I mean, she just gets the period voice, like, down in a way that feels so lived in. I, I thought it was a really incredible performance, but then it really does get this shining moment towards the end uh, where she is the one who gets to stand up for Oppenheimer during that uh, security clearance meeting. And it, it's like, it's moments like that where it's like, oh, this is why you cast Emily Blunt because she is able to be so, so sharp and so forceful and uh, able to you know, be in this kind of intimidating hearing and not look intimidated in the slightest. I thought she was incredible in this role. I've heard some criticisms of that scene, them going like, ah, oh, it's so goofy. It's like her little power moment. Zach, what did we just lay down? That anything happening in that room is recorded and on the record? Mm-hmm. Get that ex- get that criticism out of here. <laughs> Fake criticism. She killed that scene. She demolished that moment between Absolutely. her and uh, Jason Clark, who also did a fantastic job. They said everyone claimed that Jason Clark was actually the scariest one on set. <laughs> and there is this moment where he leans in. He just looks creepy. And they, mm-hmm. they start working with effects on there, you know, because uh, that, that, uh, that motif of, like, the bomb going off, he starts seeing in regular rooms. And there's this one moment where what's-his-name is just daunting over him, uh, Jason Clark, and you just see the light behind him get so big and so menacing. Yet against her, she mopped him. And then you have that follow-up moment in the future where her and Benny Safdie's character uh, interact. And she's so upset that Oppenheimer shook his hand. And she kind of just hits him with the, like, no, I'm not going to. And just the relationship was incredible. Florence Pugh plays uh, another real-life character who was his mistress to a degree and someone who was a known communist, which gets him into a lot of deep trouble. And in those moments, I know a lot of people were upset that they treated her just as the mistress that she was to Oppenheimer, which is exactly how it would work in the movie called Oppenheimer. Right. Like Um, Nolan, Nolan has a long discussed dead wife problem in his movies. And for historical accuracy reasons, unfortunately, like Florence Pugh's character, Gene Tatlock kind of falls into some of those like old tendencies, tendencies he's been criticized for, but it all also is like, so in line with the movie. And so, uh, in, it it just feels like it's true to the experience of it. I don't know. Like, I think she gets like, I think she gets a decent amount of space in the film more than maybe some of those other characters. Nolan's been criticized for in the past. It's also like true to the, the book of it. Uh, one note, little detail I noticed is that, you know, something you might not know if you didn't read the book is there's sort of, confusion, speculation, lack of sureness around the real life death of the character. I feel like yeah. there's like one shot where you see an, a hand holding her head under the water. And just, just a, I, I yeah, realized that a lot of people like thought they were imagining that. No, it's clear as day mm-hmm. in color. His perspective. Where exactly. He starts imagining that she died because of me. And there is a lot of speculation. I, I was able to read a little bit. I'm very curious how the book breaks it down, where he does feel that maybe she was off. And, you know, there's there's two elements to it, right? I, I've I, One of my favorite jokes right now has been like, Oppenheimer wasn't a communist, just his wife and brother and mistress. And <laughs> all his friends. friends and... <laughs> and all his friends, but he wasn't a communist. The other one would have been um, uh, regarding her death was she drowned 
but she also took pills. Mm-hmm. So if you took pills, well, why would you drown? Hey, I, I thought it was a very interesting way for him to put it again with this, uh, um, um, the perspective shifting technique that he had to be yeah. able to include it in there and not it not feel uh, like he's putting his own narrative stamp on it. He is using the character's perspective to to kind of think in his mind: Is this how she went? Totally. I, I thought that was very very smart way to put it. Um, but again, be, being able to compare her uh, and that relationship that he had on the side and how that was then kind of uh, brought up to be in court documents. Yeah. And Emily Blunt as the wife has to sit there and kind of hear that and take that in. It leads to this moment where he has this breakdown and she tells him, you don't get to cry for your mistakes or you don't get to make other people feel sorry for you. Mm-hmm. And then he hits who you were calling Alfred Molina. With the line of like, I know you're not an idiot or whatever, so don't. Or a fool, yeah. Don't assume don't about my relationship. About a relationship. Yeah. Oh, that hits so hard yeah. the second time, dude. Did you did you like that moment also in the hearing room with Florence Pugh? Because I know some people criticize that or, or maybe feel like it's it goes pretty far. To me, I think it's a really effective way of communicating just like how naked that experience must be of having your your life examined and documented and recorded for historical records. Like I, I think it visually. Like, obviously, it, it catches the eye, but, like, it visually feels like good representation of what's going on in the story in that moment. I may be one of the very few who wish he went even farther. The mm. moment he did that one tilt, I was hoping he was going to go crazy with it. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. We were searching up right now, the editor, what, what uh, Jennifer Lane has done. Yeah. She did freak, literally one of the movies that I thought of. She did Blonde. And mm. you know the techniques that Blonde tried to go for. Mm-hmm. That one was a little crazy. Here is where it works best. I, like you mentioned, it really showcases the vulnerability of what's happening. Because now you're being put on a government record. Mm-hmm. Your, the, your husband's infidelities are now known to the world. And it does make you feel naked like that. Yeah. It was crazy. You know, it was never in 143, though. So they were never <laughs> naked in full IMAX. Right. They were only naked... In that one nine IMAX, but yeah, no, I, that worked for me a lot. Um, yeah. And if we're we're in there, let's talk about some of the effects because there's been kind of a debate right now about Christopher Nolan not crediting his VFX workers. And again, mm. that's a growing thing. I don't want to comment too much on that, but I know that the editors came out saying that because he doesn't like using CGI and because he wants it to be fully on film, he doesn't digitize his movies. He does that old school moviola cutting. According to the editors. Hmm. Now, some people have said, no, there's got to be some color grading, some cleanup, and the VFX people have done stuff. According to them, they cut it up so it's full, true film. And then on top of that, what they ended up doing was the VFX people who weren't credited did work on stuff, like on premiere timelines. But you know the moments where the stuff is shaking behind them? Right. That is all projected onto a screen. So it's happening on camera. So the stuff for the bomb would have been, and what I'm assuming here, CGI effects that were rendered out, put on a projector, and then projected to be caught on 70 millimeter. That's pretty cool. So just some fascinating techniques that, I, you know, he's pulling a prestige here. I'm very, very curious to yeah. see if he ever drops it behind the scenes, but I know he's keeping his, uh, his cards close. 
Yeah, I mean, it feels, you know, really tactile. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure how certain sequences were not CGI, but, I, you know, there yeah. are a couple VFX artists credited, but it's it's very, very minimal, especially compared very, to a it's movie too slim. Yeah. of this size. So, um, yeah, I mean, it definitely would be curious to know more about that. Uh, but it, it's a beautiful-looking movie, beautifully assembled movie. You know, uh, we got treated to both this and Barbie in the same weekend, and I feel like they're just both films that... Uh, work from the top of the line people to the below the line crew. Uh, everybody's on their A game. Uh, speaking of some more actors that I thought were really good in it, I particularly liked Matt Damon. I think he's really good in this very like talky mode. It's similar to uh, his performance in Air earlier this year. I, I think he's right. very good in. Um, I know this isn't everybody's favorite guy. But I do think we got to talk about that Casey Affleck performance because it is so menacing. Just from the moments you hear his voice, I feel like it's it's like a perfectly utilized uh, Casey Affleck role. Even if he only gets like a scene or so of screen time, yeah. I don't know. I I thought it was one of the best moments of the movie. I agree. It was fantastic. I know his voice so well that I Same. knew it was him. Same. But did you see the audience slowly just go until they see him? <laughs> Whoa! It's Casey Affleck. Yeah. Look, I don't know if Nolan sat through interstellar screenings and loved the reaction when Matt Damon appears, like, <laughs> two-thirds way uh, of the movie in. Mm-hmm. That now he felt, I'm going to do that for, like, everybody in this film. They take their time, and that's what I mean. The, the movie has several moments, right? Like, the JFK line. There was a senator trying to make a name for himself. JFK. The way, they boy, repre- the, the, the way they push Einstein sometimes. It. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about Alden. But even the way they showcase Casey, who you just brought up, they do, like, show him from the back. I'm not going to call it corny, but it is, like, <laughs> a little goofy. The way it, like, built up to it. I don't mind it, but yeah. I do have to say, like, it's really funny, the build-up to the audience. You're about to see a big actor. Um, but you're right. He does kill it. My only, my only bit with not claiming him one of the best Mm-hmm. Matt Damon kind of speaks for him. Matt Damon says the line, oh, yeah, and he rings somebody with his with his own bare hands. Mm-hmm. Kind of narrating over him a little bit too much, but... Yeah. No, it's a very effective scene, but partially, yeah, because Damon is is sort of setting the table for that moment yeah. as well. Uh, but and again, yeah, it's still Damon's very really good. good. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your boy, uh, Alden. <laughs> we're, we're not so... He <laughs> went up to bat against uh, uh, what's his name Strauss Downey yeah. Jr. What a great job! Uh, what, what's the movie Fair Play it, on Netflix later this year? Yeah. He's still cooking up more things. Good for him, dude. Yeah, man. Kind of the audience voice in this movie. You know, the one who uh, is finding out about all this as we're finding out about all this. I thought he was really excellent in it. I thought he did a great job. Shout out to him for now being in IMAX black and white, which we haven't mentioned yet. A brand new stock of film that was created mm-hmm. just for this movie. And I thought just the back and forth of what he was uh, going through with Robert Downey Jr.'s character um, gave him a lot to work with and chew on. And especially on rewatches, you notice you know, uh, how he feels like the rookie only to then come out on top uh, with the person that he's working for. Mm-hmm. I will say I didn't realize how much him... And um, your boy from The Boys, they look so much like Jack Quaid and him. I I was confusing them. Jack Quaid comes out for two goofy scenes. One's to Mm -hmm. play the bongos. Which apparently historically accurate. 
And then the other one is for that scene with Benny Safdie where he's like, I don't need the glasses. I got the little, my windshield. Yeah. Well, it's going to protect you from the windshield. Really funny stuff. Um, <laughs> but Alden did fantastic. Uh, I have some other ones here. You mentioned Matt Damon. Really good job. I heard Matt Damon fought for more lines. Which oh, I really? find really funny. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was Emily Blunt who called him out because they, they live in the same building in New York. That's why that picture oh. went viral of them hanging out together because uh, I guess they see each other every morning. Yeah. But uh, Dane DeHaan. My man's got to be a side actor because he kills it in that sliminess that he has. Dude. Yeah, dude. I would remember there was an era where people were like, oh, Dane DeHaan's going to be the next great leading man. I, I think DiCaprio, that. DiCaprio. It's that best. Arc. Are, uh, almost robbed us of who's a guy who's going to be like a fantastic character actor. You know, uh, d- you don't even really need him to start talking, and you kind of know who this guy is going to be already. <laughs> yes. But but he also makes it better through his vocal delivery. I think I think it's a great uh, just sleaze ball uh, scumbag performance. Yeah. That dinner scene in the circle table when they cut back to it and they move the flowers to reveal him is such yeah. a like da 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 da. <laughs> he's so annoying and he did yeah. such a great job. Big fan of Chronicle. I- I'm glad that he's able to get these uh, smaller but more impacting impacting roles. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed Einstein. Uh, shout out Tom Conti. No, he did. He did a fantastic Con- job. Yeah, Connor in, in the live stream says uh, Tom Conti Oscar Oscar campaign incoming. I love that. You know, you, you, it's hard to. Be like, oh, let's go talk to Albert Einstein. Einstein. And then the guy shows up and he kind of like sells it. But he totally yeah. sold it. He did. Um, and while he is great, Zach, you just have to understand that Josh Pack might get the Oscar nomination <laughs> because he's the one who pulled the lever. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't believe uh, the glow up he got. But yeah, Josh Peck, an integral role in this movie. Uh, let me just go through a couple of other ones. But I do want to go back to Einstein because I want to talk about that theory you mentioned uh, on your post. But, you know, Josh oh, Peck... Sure great for him he did a fantastic job in it we talked about jack quaid didn't realize how much him and uh our boy look alike (laughs) i found out about this two hours before i went to my screening (laughs) i'm reading my my you know the little screening report and it tells me uh featuring you know a dozen people and then it continues and it says and rami malik and i'm like and and rami malik and did you also think that when you watched the first two and a half hours of this movie (laughs) and he doesn't appear for anything (laughs) And then you think, great, he appears for, like, one scene in the background. They tell him to shut up because he's taking the minutes. And you're like, yeah. that's all you used Rami Malik for was for a hint of paprika in the recipe? Then he comes in, and it's this beautiful sequence where everyone keeps lying. And Oppenheimer just asks, is anybody ever going to tell the truth? And then it cuts to silence. And they bring in somebody Mr. else. Mr. Robot is here. And he did a fantastic job, man. Yeah. He, hey. This man's like, yay. <laughs> he knows how to use all the flourishes that he needs from everybody. We're still not even done with this cast. I don't know if you have something else to say for Rami, but I got no, like I mean, eight more people. I was just gonna I was just gonna say with Rami, I think I was so frustrated by his win for best actor and the whole mm. cycle around Bohemian Rhapsody that like for a while it clouded me to the fact that I really like Rami Malik as an actor. He's I think great, he's a dude. really good actor. He is, he's one of the best. And hey. At least he got a win. You know, he was in 007 for whatever that villain was for as much. And if he gets to do more things like this, I'm happy for it. We need more leading roles from him, though, that uh, that are standouts. I do agree with you there. But uh, shout out Rami Malek. Even some tinier ones, dude, when they're compiling everybody. Olivia Thirlby. Yeah. Who's, you know, been an actress in the game for a minute. 
she has this one bit where she's obviously fighting with the boys and she represents how there were more obviously male scientists there than there were females. But there's this one bit. I caught it really quickly the first time around, but I was definitely able to hear it the second time around. I don't know how many people catch it. She insults one of the guys who's like making fun of her going like, I just look at that there's a lot of radiation. I don't know if it's going to affect your baby parts. And she pretty much says, I don't know the quote exactly. But she's like, wouldn't you be affected more because your sticks out? At least yeah, you're, you're more exposed does. than I am. <laughs> oh, a dick joke in a Christopher Nolan 1940s movie. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. She also uh, gets the moment when the scientists start to object to the use of the bomb at all. So she, she gets a lot to do in this movie that's exactly, very yeah. male-dominated otherwise. It's small, but they, they have impacting moments. We talked yeah. about Casey Affleck being crazy. It's time. It's time. Ooh. I also knew it was him the moment I like smelled him, bro. The moment I, we cut to the president's thing, I knew it was going to be him. I have a weird thing where I just do not recognize. I'm like a little bit face blind with Gary Oldman, but like I sort of. he's that did, guy. I like did the math and realized, yeah, oh, that's got to be the Gary Oldman role. It, it took somebody until like literally the final line where he says, get that crybaby out of here. Where someone went, was that Gary Oldman? <laughs> People keep talking about Casey. Nah, this is the best solo scene mm-hmm. performance I have seen and, in like and this the is last the scene, decade. This is the scene also where like if you think this movie is like ambiguous in what it's trying to say morally about this this right? event, you're just not watching this movie. If you didn't hear the way he pronounced Nagasaki, then you were not paying attention to the movie and weren't stamps. Yeah. Incredible yeah, performance. Gary Oldman did a fantastic job. And then to find out that I am going to borrow was, that, like, take out a handkerchief and, and wipe somebody's hands bro, with it. So tell me that is not a good fellas type scene, though. Like, here, <laughs> clean it up. It's a mob movie through the gun. Yeah. That's what he did. Um, mm-hmm. A little shout out to Macon Blair, dude. Yeah. Macon Blair, he is a director. He is also a, a an actor. I, look, I've been following him for a while since Green Room, and, like... <laughs> I really ruined. appreciated him being there. He did a fantastic job as a, yeah. would have been what his lawyer, his representation. Yeah, his like really I good guess, work. sort of defense attorney. Yeah, so shout out to Megan Blair. Really cool to see him there. James Darcy also being one of the people who uh, was doing some of the interrogation. Kenneth Branagh, number actor fifteen. <laughs> Another guy with the silly accent in the movie. Another guy who comes in just to add these extra flourishes. You know, there's a joke with him early on where he's almost the one who buys, who bites the apple. Sorry, James Darcy would have been the professor who he almost killed with the apple. Um, and then Kenneth Branagh comes in and tries to eat the apple, and they have a little wormhole physicist joke, which I thought was pretty funny. Um, and then becomes their like Christmas present later, where again you realize that he is taking all of these ideas from somebody else. It's never really Oppenheimer who's doing anything more than bringing everyone together to bring in this recipe of what they need. But everyone else is the one who's creating. He's just the one who ends up on Time Magazine. Sky High Boy. That's all I'm going to say. Shout out to him. <laughs> A lot of, like, people ripped from kids' entertainment. Isn't uh, Roderick right? from Diary of a Wimpy Kid in this, too? <laughs> Thank you for bringing him up. Yeah, Roderick's in this. I literally, in both screenings, heard someone say, oh, <gasps> Roderick. <laughs> and it was me in both screenings. The fact that David Dosmalchian was in the Dark Knight for him and played that really creepy uh, Joker uh, henchman who was pretending to be a cop. And since then, the poor man has been typecast to be all these creepy roles. The fact that he's he's not the most normal one in this movie is such a full circle moment. Mm -hmm. You know, great on Killian for being an actor who was in six movies 
with Christopher Nolan and now getting this big one. You know, Christopher Nolan looks out for his people. Now he made sure, you know what, David? We're getting rid of that stigma. You're going to be a vet. And he really has the sequence yeah. that impacts Oppenheimer the most. A little bit of a creepy me- vet, though. A little bit, yeah. But when he meets up with him and he tells him, you know, I know what those missiles are like because I felt them when I served. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that ends up being stuck in Oppenheimer's mind towards yeah. the end of the movie when he pictures himself in the shuttle and envisions the world that would be destroyed. Absolutely. So, I know we're still missing a dozen more, but if there's another character or someone who stood out to y'all, let us know down below. Absolutely. There's so much to dig ensemble. into with this movie. Um, I, For me, I am pretty... I feel pretty secure in saying that this is going to be one of the best movies of the year. Like, I already got it right near the top, if not at the top of my rankings. Uh, we'll, mm-hmm. we'll see how it all feels in the end, but, Look you know, that. it's a three-hour movie. Yeah, I mean, uh, people online are loving it as well. Um, you know, it's a movie that it's three hours long, but the second that the credits rolled, I was thinking about when I'm going to see it again because I think there's so much to, so much to dig into. Uh, Christopher Nolan is not a stranger to having his movies ranked on IMDb top two fifties or Letterbox top two fifties. Yeah, Inception's up there. The Dark Knight Three. is up there. I'm sure wow. Interstellar is somewhere on that list as well. Uh, Memento, I think, used to be pretty 24. high up. I don't know if it is anymore. Yeah, um, Memento fifty six. I mean, he he's like the king of the IMDb top two fifty in some ways. Uh, but you know, we've seen no Dunkirk. We've seen the different Nolan offerings out there. We've got our own opinions. Is this the best Christopher Nolan out there? Is it tier A? Is it mid-tier Christopher Nolan? Is this bad Christopher Nolan? Where where do you have Oppenheimer in your personal Christopher Nolan rankings? What's your favorite Scorsese movie? I mean, I, yeah, I know that's it's... that's what we're sick. dealing with. Yeah. <laughs> it's just the filmography at yeah. this point. That's exactly. all it is. Of course I would hear it. If Oppenheimer is your favorite and you think it's the best, I've yeah, you have more than enough to argue that. Personally, I will always pitch people uh, Memento and Prestige. Because I know that The Dark Knight's already the cliche. I feel like everybody knows about Inception. Everybody knows about Interstellar. All great movies. And I understand why all of those can be people's number one. To me, I'm going to say Memento and Prestige. But it just showcases to you that you're just dealing with a director who's got a filmography. That no matter where you start, where you begin, where you end. He's, he's going to take you for a ride, and psh, Oppenheimer's just another one. I think it's his most mature, and yeah. that's what I love seeing. The fact that, it, damn, like he's going to continue honing this down. Um, you were talking about, is it worth seeing it in IMAX 70 millimeter if it's going to be jumping around? My second half for the LME is going to be really breaking down. I wish I had more footage, but it's how he's playing with your eyes. Mm. Because he is doing, there's this line that he continues to say about 3D without the glasses, the fact that he's able to use the crop to instill in your eyes that that's the frame. Mm-hmm. Cut to black and then showcase an explosion that will go beyond that frame. I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're giving people stouts who have never tried stouts for the first time. The moment you know what to mm-hmm. taste, what to look for with your eyes, that's, that's what we're discussing here. And, and again, yeah. we're really early. We like to dissect movies early on right away. But in time and... Hopefully, with even more re-releases, we will notice like what he was really doing with those aspect ratios. And hey, you don't have to wait. It is playing right now. That was my big thing. If you have the ability to see it in IMAX 70 millimeter, even if you don't fully understand it, do yourself a favor and get a ticket so that you could say you were there. <gasps> Absolutely. And maybe you might even get one of these. 
I know. I'm so they jealous were, of you. They were giving these bad boys out. It's supposed to be the film reels. It's so beautiful. They were giving out different ones. I did not make the trip to go do the other ones, but Alina was ready to take me because they had some different ones out there. But if you can, do yourself a favor. I like this one because it's got probably all the best scenes in terms of like the bomb itself, mm-hmm. the iconic one of him looking out into the thing, and then uh, that black and white. Yeah. Wait, IMAX. Damn. I need Hoytman here because I can't frame this at all. <laughs> It's some beautiful stuff, and I don't know. Maybe it looks better if I take it out of the, the strip. I did have one that I started taking out. Um, no gloves. Look at me. I, I look like an AMC projectionist over here, but some beautiful yeah. stuff. And they're supposed to have. I'm very jealous of that. Another one coming out. Um, Lincoln Square should I have one, bro. Just go check into the AMC and then just snatch <sighs> one at the end. But the, the IMAX is all the way on the third floor by itself. Elevator. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, look, I'm. I'm I'll take one of those front row seats just to grab those frames or something. Um, Getting back to Christopher Nolan. (laughs) No, I'm happy I got this one. Uh, Getting back to Christopher Nolan, you know, I think there's a lot of people who find the things that he's done tiresome. I think a lot of people make fun of how how, uh, pretentious some of his films can seem in certain ways. Yeah, and it honestly it just bothers me because I really think he. And, and I he's don't want to say this. Yeah, I think he's like not nearly as like, I don't know. I, I don't want to reuse the word sanctimonious, but like, I don't think he's as preachy as some people say. I think he's just a guy working things out through film. And he's been uh, he's lucky enough to have worked his way to a place where he's maybe one of the only people getting to make original movies at that scale. And, you know, maybe you don't think he is like the greatest artist of that kind, but like that he is really making pretty incredible things that deserve to be seen on the big screen. And I I just hope people are like open to it. Cause he's, yeah, he's like really putting a lot of care and craft into this and like the the only thing is like when people don't appreciate it, it just makes me a little bit sad because I I want to, I want people to appreciate the cool things Bad. about it I don't think I don't think it's that this dude is like this untouchable uh, genius or something but he's doing some things that you know if you love film I think it, it's hard to deny what the strengths of this movie are and you know for me it's a lot of the stuff that I really love about movies so that's why I put it really high up on my list and maybe it's not going to be like the best movie you see this year or anything like that but I think it is like an undeniable cinematic event and, and I hope that people are open to to that kind of event because there's so much good stuff in Oppenheimer I don't know if I have it at the top of my Nolan rankings personally. I, I don't know if a movie uh, will ever be able to really dislodge Memento from there because to me, that's hey, a film so that... Hey, you agree with me? Yeah, it, it, to me, oh, Memento like opened up my like eyes to what movies can be. Yeah. I also just think Dunkirk is like brilliant on a level that is hard to be paralleled. So for I me, I got those two as my top two. Ooh, wow. I, okay. I might got Oppenheimer right below them. I really, Whoa. really love this one. I think it's okay. a very good movie. Very good. Uh, and I agree with you. I think we've incepted an image of Nolan into our own minds that we mm-hmm. think he's out of reach yeah. when he's a lot more relatable than we think he is. He just has this this grasp on cinematic language and a care for it. Mm-hmm. Like when people shoot on IMAX, they're borrowing his lenses that he created. Yeah. Like this is a dude who fully cares about it. And I think a lot of people take that 
love and passion that he has for it and they see it as pretentiousness. And mm-hmm. it's like, but you're creating that, right? Even before this movie came out, they were revisiting his other movies and not being able to take that. Bane was a villain who did something dealing with Wall Street, but then so was the hero, the Dark Knight, dealing with surveillance. Yeah. Like you were, we were mentioning earlier, it's not... It, it's commenting. I think we kind of said this more in the Barbie uh, review. It's commenting on something that we deal with and looking at it from an objective point of view, not a subjective point of view. Regardless of if you see the character as a villain or a hero or whatever, he's just kind of like displaying it on screen. And uh, I think that's why we, we you have a lot of people who have started the Nolan Bros thing, right? Oh, it's just yeah. these movies that mean more than they are. Yeah. And then this movie came out. And woo, did they switch. A lot of Nolan haters all of a sudden mm-hmm. showing up like gentle minions to these screenings. And sometimes it takes a while. But I'm glad we're here and I'm glad that we have another Christopher Nolan movie to talk about. Can't exactly. wait to the next one. This man does not let up. You and I haven't even had a proper Tenet talk. I haven't even seen Tenet properly in a theater because of the pandemic. Oh, yeah, but maybe we got to see the Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer love can motivate IMAX to bring back Tenet. I, please, oh, I, I would go. love that. Oh, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet. I would, yeah, I'd sit the entire, I'd sit for that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I saw one criticism of this movie that it's like Nolan's obsession with time is continuing, but it's like, I don't know, man, he's kind of better than anybody ever at doing that kind of thing. So why would you want him to do something else? That's so lame. I hear the same thing with Spielberg, right? Oh, it's always like the same thing. And he like makes it for the masses. Boo hoo. Like what? He's the master of it. Why don't they, we appreciate that yeah. instead of Y'all asking him, him to do something that he him. wouldn't be as good at? 100%. But Absolutely. Hey, enjoy him while he's here, not when, you know, 20 years pass and yeah. then it's the retrospective that you do. Do you like my assessment on Letterboxd? I have agreed with this sentiment for the longest time. And I saw someone start mentioning this when, they, uh, when the New York critics thing happened. Mm-hmm. And the New York critics laughed at the guy. <laughs> no, 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 no. They don't understand art. Yeah. I'm going to put it to you that way. Well, first of all, like, just the idea that the author of a piece would find ways to relate to the subject of the piece is not exactly, like, groundbreaking arts criticism. So, like, to, to counter that, I it feel makes like no it makes so no now sense. You're, Zach, now you are feeling what I feel so many times in LME <laughs> when you're just saying a theory. <laughs> and they get too mad. Yeah, I mean, the, the comments are eating me up on, on Instagram, at least. But It's insane, though, right? Because it's sort of like, well, well what is this unhealthy obsession <laughs> with not wanting to even, like, accept or hear it? That mm-hmm. is crazy to me. And that's usually when you're on to something. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah, I don't know. I have, I have <laughs> some breakdowns. I'm going to do, like, a, a match cut-up of certain things because he has had parallel. We were talking with Barbie exactly. about how Barbie's going to have the inverse of what the Dark Knight's Dark and Gritty did. Barbie's mm-hmm. not going to be light like that. And yeah, I mean, they're both directors. They exactly. both delegate to people. It, they're, it, it, it's there, dude. He cast yeah. his daughter. That's the only pin I'm going to put on there. Absolutely. Be yeah. for I real. mean, uh, for, for what it's worth, for the audio only listeners, I, I was saying, you know, there's a lot of parallels between Christopher Nolan's story and the story of Oppenheimer that are pretty interesting. But Nolan is not a guy who is immune to putting a version of himself in movies. I mean, all of his protagonists are like well-dressed, besuited men. Oh, and look at that. when's the Inception last time you poster? <laughs> yeah, exactly. When's the last time you saw Nolan not in a like well-tailored suit? That's just his vibe. 100%. So. I'll give you another one. Robert Downey Jr. I already have an interview with him saying, oh, when he gave it to me, I realized how personal the script was to him. 
There we go. There we go. What else y'all need? See what I mean? Like, we ain't having a conversation with y'all, bro. We telling you, watch your IMAX 70 millimeter. If you don't get it, A, that's fine. We yeah. telling you these theories. If you don't get it, A, that's fine. That's cool, but man. Don't it's come just back movies. Five years from now. <laughs> <laughs> and be like, you know what? Absolutely. Ugh. All right, so I think that's about all we want to get into with Oppenheimer. But nah, I'm let's sure go another 45. You know, <laughs> we could, the- <laughs> dude. We didn't even talk about the box office numbers. Uh, we we will talk about Barbenheimer more as a phenomenon for sure on Intercut. And I, I have a feeling this movie is going to come up as we talk about best movies of the year, best performances of the year. We get into some Intercut awards and stuff like that. So uh, there will be more Oppenheimer talk at some time. But let us know what you thought of Oppenheimer. Any questions you have regarding it? Definitely want to hear from the intercuties on the latest from Christopher Nolan. Uh, But I think that's about all for our breakdown of Oppenheimer on After Credits. You can catch more from me, Zach Shevich, by following me on Twitter, Instagram, or Letterboxd at ZShevich, Z-S-H-E-V-I-C-H. And check out my YouTube or TikTok channels at Multiplex Show Art. Where can people find more from you? You can find me streaming on 70mm over at LME Movies on Instagram, Twitter, Threads? Threads? Yeah, I saw you started a Threads. By accident, bro, and now I can't get rid of it. Uh, or on YouTube.com, especially here every week on the Intercut Podcast. You can listen to every episode of the Intercut Podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcatcher is. I like Overcast, and then make sure you subscribe not just to the audio podcast, but to the video feed as well here on YouTube.com slash Intercut Pod, where you can watch our bright, smiling faces as we break down the latest in entertainment. Find new episodes of Intercut every week streaming on Mondays and please leave us a comment like the videos consider heading over to iTunes to give us that much requested five star review hey if we get 250 five star reviews we can get together and make an atomic bomb of our own I think that'd be fun to do our own little Manhattan project I thought you were gonna say that we all nuclear bombs will go away (laughs) (laughs) but yes we will have ours first uh can uh, thank you to our listeners in France for putting us on the oh. film review podcast charts out there. You can follow the podcast at Intercut Pod across social media, whether that's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Also on Patreon, where you can support the show for as little as $1 a month and get access to some cool stuff like a private channel in the Discord, access to our monthly patron hangouts, and so much more. Uh, you can also get updates throughout the week from art, from me, from all the guests that we feature here on Intercut. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, there's a nearly 0% chance that this podcast will cause the end of the world.